0: This is Greg Lozinski, and you're listening to Baseball BBQ.
1: Hi, this is Gary Mack of the Mets Musings Podcast, and you're listening to Jeff and Len on Baseball and Barbecue, one of my favorite podcasts, and I know
0: it's one of yours, too. The only problem is... After I get done listening to it, I'm hungry. All right, guys, take it away. Thank
2: you, Gary Mack, and welcome to episode number 47 of Baseball and Barbecue. Yeah. I am. 47. I, I want to introduce us. Okay, go ahead. I'm Len Aberman. I'm not
3: stopping you. Go ahead.
2: I am Len Aberman, and you are? I'm Jeff Cohen. And again, you guys know we're excited to be here. You're excited. I can't believe it. I get excited about these things. It's hard to believe that it has been two weeks since we've seen you guys, since we've talked to you. And in that two weeks' time, we have some exciting things to go over, some interviews. By the way, the Baseball Hall of Fame ballot is out. Oh, it is? Yes, it is. Ah. You know that uh, one Derek... Or should I just call him DJ? It may be unanimous. Derek Jeter may go in unanimous. How do you feel about that? Jeets? <laughs> yes. Jeets? So the Baseball Hall of Fame ballot is out. I don't even know that we're going to have time to talk about it on this episode. I, I don't know why I'm bringing it up other than like to know what you guys think. And then uh, if we don't get time on this episode. We'll talk about it on another episode, but I just think it's... I mean, we have time. They don't re- announce the results until January. January. right? So we have a, so much on this podcast that we don't really have time to go into it, but just to mention it.
3: And if you have any thoughts on that, give us a call. Give us a call. 516-855-8214. Email us, barbecue at gmail.com. Or send smoke signals. You can tweet us. Our Twitter... Twitter address is at Baseball and BBQ. No more smoke signals? No, we, most, we no more smoke signals. How about carrier pigeons? How about in Instagram? Okay, Instagram. Baseball <laughs> and barbecue. BBQ all spelled out. Try us on our, our Facebook page. Leave a comment. Right. And our, our website,
2: www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. What about... Those tin cans where you tied the string in between the cans. All then right, Lynn.
3: Okay, Glenn. Now
2: you're getting silly. Oh, now I'm getting silly. Okay. It's just because I'm so excited. I want to tell about... Why? What, what, what's so excited about this episode? We had the opportunity to speak with none other than Barry Lyons. Barry Lyons, former Major League Baseball player. That's right. Anytime you get to speak, anytime we get to speak to a former Major League Baseball player... I get excited. Yes, so do I sort of why he. Uh, I I really enjoyed the interview. He played for the Mets, the Dodgers, and the Angels. He said a lot of things. He went. Through, he's been through a lot in his life. Talked about Dwight Gooden. Yeah. Uh, talked about you know his his struggles yeah. with addiction.
3: He's been through the uh, uh, the horrible hurricane of Katrina. That's right. And he has come out a better man. Yeah. And he is uh, uh, was a delight to speak to, and we can't wait for you to hear the interview.
2: So let's listen right now. Okay. To say this man is just a former major league baseball player only serves as a brief moment in a life that has seen and been through so much. Yet, after all he has been through, he has persevered. And baseball and barbecue is honored to have our guest. Barry Lyons joining us. Barry, welcome to Baseball and Barbecue.
1: Well, thank you, guys. It's great to be on with you. I've uh, had the pleasure of listening to several of your podcasts, and uh, I'm honored to be one of your guests, and uh, looking forward to, to sharing with you tonight.
3: Thank you. Thank, thank you, Barry. Barry, first of all, how, how's life going with you now?
1: Life is good. I've really been blessed in so many ways. I'm, I'm uh, very fortunate to have lived a life that uh, has been through uh, many ups and downs, uh, to say the least. But uh, I've had uh, a childhood dream lived by becoming a Major League Baseball player. And I've uh, experienced so much uh, in this lifetime that uh, I just love sharing uh, the highs and the lows. And bad, and uh, hopefully uh, my my legacy uh, will will last, and and others will be encouraged and uplifted by uh, my testimony. And certainly, being able to share tonight and visit with you uh, tonight is is part of that uh, sharing of that of my testimony. And it, it, it's just an honor uh, to be on with you guys, and uh, I. Life is good. God is good. And uh, I'm uh, sad that baseball season is over. <laughs> I enjoyed uh, the postseason, and and I was entrenched uh, into the World Series. And for various reasons, I'm, I'm happy uh, with the Washington Nationals winning it. Uh, David Davey Martinez was a teammate of mine and a friend of mine. Oh. And so I, I, I if the Mets weren't in, uh, I was... Uh, I was happy to see the Nationals win and, and that organization win, uh, which obviously uh, originated in Montreal and was one of our top rivals during the time I was with the Mets. So uh, a lot of good stories involved, and certainly, uh, like I said, sad season's over, but uh, looking forward to uh, next spring. But we've got a got a a winter ahead of us now without baseball, and, and that to me is. Uh, a difficult time, but uh, spring will be here soon enough.
2: Well, let's talk about Barry. What? Let's go back, way back, to where the uh, the Vaseline is on the lens, and it goes way. You know, all of a sudden, you we see you as a young boy, Barry. How old were you when you finally, when you thought of that you could be a major league player, or you had the dream of being a major league player? How old were you when you realized that you were uh, a little better than everybody else?
1: Well, I, I, I was passionate uh, for the game of baseball very early on uh, as, a, as a little kid. Uh, I was the youngest of four boys, and uh, all my brothers were, uh, were outstanding athletes and certainly good baseball players as well as uh, good in other sports and, and uh, were, were role models uh, for me in my own home. And, uh, my parents uh, sacrificed. Did everything they could for my brothers and I to be able to, to experience the challenges that sports brings, but also to reap the benefits and, and the, the life lessons that, that sports brings us. And uh, I was a beneficiary of uh, being the youngest and, and seeing all the good things and the tough times and, and everything in between that my brothers went through. And so I, I had an edge early on. Uh, talent-wise, I was blessed by God with with uh, physical ability, but uh, the wisdom that I gained from following my brothers, watching my brothers, uh, being uh, a, a passionate fan of the game, uh, I was ahead of the other guys my age. But uh, in little league baseball, I, I, you know, in between them, ages of 10 and 12 years old. I loved the game so much and was so moved by Major League Baseball. I had a, an early childhood idol in Brooks Robinson of the Baltimore Orioles, uh, and later, you know, wanted to emulate Thurman Munson when I started uh, playing the position of catcher as a ninth grader. Uh, but those two guys from the Major League, uh, I really sort of patterned my game after, if you will, and. and admired as players and leaders of their teams and uh I, I i was blessed in many ways but i knew as a very young kid that i wanted to be a major league baseball player as a matter of fact i i wrote that in a, an essay that i wrote in sixth grade that my mother kept in uh, uh, inside of her bible that was in her bedroom that i discovered after hurricane katrina in 2005 and uh, I, I knew that it existed. I had seen it in years prior to that, but uh, it made it through the through the hurricane and, and survived. And uh, I have that uh, that old uh, handwritten essay that I wrote back in uh, sixth grade that that concluded with uh, the statement that said, my ambition is to be a pro baseball player. And certainly, uh, I was blessed to know early on, and I had no reason to believe or to know that I would be a major league player but it was a goal it was a dream it was a hope it was a vision it was something that uh, that God put in my heart and you know thankfully he blessed me with uh, the ability and so many amazing things that happened on that process during that process of becoming a big leaguer that only he could orchestrate and uh, I just give him all the glory and honor today and I'm very thankful for my career in baseball and my life in baseball for that matter.
3: Barry, did you always knew you wanted to be a catcher? I, I mean, I, I'm partial to the catching position. I was a catcher in the Little League, and you all have a, a unique perspective on the game where everybody is watching the bat, but you like looking out toward the toward the field. When did you know you wanted to be a catcher, or was that the position that you uh, go you're going through uh, college and minor leagues that they, they put you in there?
1: No, it was. Uh... It was something I chose to do. My, my oldest brother Kenny was a, as all, I mentioned, all my brothers were outstanding athletes, but my brother Kenny was a, a, a very, very talented athlete, was a quarterback at the University of Mississippi, otherwise known as Ole Miss, back in the early 70s. He was the quarterback at Ole Miss right after Archie Manning.
3: Oh, really? Huh? Wow.
1: I was uh, obviously encouraged and inspired by him. And But baseball was my game, and to me, the quarterback of the baseball team is the catcher. Mm, and yeah. there were a few other factors that led me, uh, as a, a ninth grade player, my high school coach had asked me if I wanted to be a catcher, and I, I sort of balked at it at the time, but that summer, after my ninth grade season in high school, uh, I made the choice. Uh, Literally and figuratively, I I gave up pitching. I never pitched another inning after that. I was a pitcher third baseman prior to that change. And uh, I never pitched again. I always caught, but I also played a good bit of first base and and alternated between catcher and first base. In high school In college, I was primarily a catcher, and I caught every game throughout my college career. But even in the minor leagues, I, I played probably more at first base than I did catching with the Mets. Uh, the Mets had John Gibbons as a number one draft pick that I was competing with. They had a guy named Greg Olson that was drafted ahead of me that ended up catching uh, in the big league with the Braves uh, later on. But I, I was uh, constantly in a battle uh, with various other players Really outstanding players for that catching uh, position in the Mets organization, but ultimately uh, uh, I won out, and, and uh, my you know my offensive prowess, if you will, in the minor league. As I got to the big leagues, and as I got to catch more and more, I became much better defensive catcher. I had a, a label early on in my minor league as an offensive player but uh, a questionable catcher. And by the time I got to the big league, the label that was kind of stuck to me was that I was a, a solid defensive catcher, but a questionable offensive. So uh, it's uh, it's amazing how you can get labeled uh, one way or another. But uh, I enjoyed my career. Uh, I, I had a, you know, really a, 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 a dynamic minor league career. And uh you know, was very uh, looking forward to becoming uh, the starting catcher in New York with the Mets when uh, we made the trade to bring Gary Carter over, and that obviously changed things. But I, I, I regret nothing. I, I had a great time. I had a lot of wonderful teammates and, and, and great guys that uh, I, I came up through the organization with and uh, had so many incredible memories of times in New York. When the New York Mets of the era that I was blessed to be in, New York Mets, we owned New York City. We were the host of uh, all of Major League Baseball. Yeah, we did win but one World Series, but we were. We had uh, obviously some great players, and the, the national uh, baseball fan base as a whole, uh, I think, really uh, took to the New York Mets, and uh, we were. We were beloved uh, and hated at the
2: same time. <laughs> you know, Barry, it's funny because um, so we you said so many things that makes me want to ask you so many questions, but we opened this up to some of our listeners, and I, I we, we said to them who we were having on. We had a lot of people excited to, to ask you questions, so I'm going to combine a couple. I had Ryan Levy and uh, John O'Brien, two of our listeners, and... <laughs> One of them wanted to know about your um, your college career, but to combine that with the fact that while you were in college, you were drafted by the Detroit uh, Tigers. Uh, I think like in the twenty fifth round, and you didn't take that. You continued with your college career, and then the next year, uh, then you went in the fifteenth round. Ra- Which round did you go in? Right, the fifteenth round. Fifteenth round. Right. Uh- Right to to the Mets. So the the question is: Talk a little bit about staying in college, um, and do you ever have any regrets that you didn't uh, go with the Tigers? Because you mentioned you mentioned Gary Carter, although the Tigers had Lance Parrish at the time. So uh, who knows what would have happened there? But and I know you said you had no regrets. But what? Take us through your thought process while you were in college. Yes. Uh, absolutely. Uh... Uh, the good Lord blessed
1: me with uh, the opportunity to play at a, a small college, a Division II college in Mississippi that had an outstanding baseball program, primarily because a wonderful man by the name of Dave Boo Ferris, who was a great Red Sox pitcher back in the 1940s, was the pitching coach for the for the Boston Red Sox for several years in the 1950s. Uh, he was from the Mississippi Delta. and. Uh, his career was cut short by uh, arm injury, but he was teammate with Ted Williams and uh, those great players that the Red Sox had, and actually pitched the shutout in the 1946 World Series for the Red Sox against the Cardinals. Uh, but Boo Ferris was uh, a godly man, a mentor, a friend, and uh, you know my college baseball coach, and. and uh, Playing for him was such a blessing, and uh, he really uh, instilled confidence in me. He, he gave me the opportunity to play college baseball from the day I walked on campus to the day I left. I was the starting catcher. I was the guy that uh, you know, the other players looked up to and the guy that was the leader of the team. And uh, There were responsibilities that went with that, and certainly uh, I, I enjoyed that role and enjoyed uh, being that guy. Uh, but uh, my junior year, the scouts really began to take note uh, of me my first two years, but my junior year, they were coming around quite a bit, but unfortunately I got hurt that year. I, I, I suffered a fracture in my, my left catching hand in the hammock bone, which you hear about from time to time, and I missed part of the year. I didn't have the season that I hoped to have, our team uh, didn't have the type of season that we had anticipated having and then you know i did get drafted in the 25th round and i was a little discouraged about that uh the offer from the deep right tigers was minimal uh as far as uh a signing bonus is concerned and uh i made a decision to go back and, and finish what i didn't get done uh at Delta State University, and uh, had a long conversation after I made that decision with Coach Boo Ferris, and uh, there were some things that I was doing, uh, that I began doing in the college years, and uh, the partying scene, and the after-game parties, and uh, uh, the uh, after-practice and after-game drinking uh, became uh, something that uh, I I began to, to indulge in more and more, and and he, he warned me and encouraged me and shared with me what he believed uh, was ahead for me and the opportunities that set light ahead. And, and, and I took to heart that and thanked him and appreciated his fatherly advice that he gave me. Uh, and it turned out I had the, my best season as a senior. I was an All-American catcher. We, we went to the Division Two College World Series, finishing second. And I was drafted Mississippi College Baseball Player of the Year. Uh, so a lot of things really went my way that year. And then I was drafted 10 rounds earlier by the New York Mets. And uh, I was thrilled about that. One, get the chance to play professionally. But two, the Mets A franchise at that time was in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, in my home state. So uh, it was an exciting time for me, to say the least. And... Uh, then I went right on into my minor league career and had a good first half of season, where I joined the uh, Shelby Mets, the South Atlantic League affiliate for the Mets, and became teammates with Lenny Dykstra, and Mark Carrion and Roger McDowell uh, that first season. And uh, actually went to instructional league that that same that fall. Uh, and uh, was roommate with Lenny and Mark, and uh, that was uh, quite an experience. That uh, you'd have to, to uh, live to, to tell about it. But uh, Lenny uh, certainly, as we all know, is uh, is quite the character. But
4: uh,
3: <laughs> yeah, uh, that
1: began my minor league career and uh, my first full season in, in the in the minor league system. Uh, I, I got injured in spring training and. Uh, was assigned to Lynchburg, and that was the year the White came team exploded onto the scene. And uh, but I, I was there with Greg Olson, who was a, a very solid defensive catcher, not a, not much of an offensive threat at, at that time. But uh, and rather than split time, they sent me back to class, to the low A team, and I had a, a good season, but nothing like what I had hoped to do. But uh, the next two seasons, I was MVP of the Carolina League. I had a great season there, and we won the Carolina League Championship with Dave Magadan. It was on that club. Kevin Elster. There were uh, some other guys that that Randy Myers was that club. And then the next year in Double A, and after that year in Lynchburg, and the Carolina League Championship, and MVP. That's when I was sitting uh, at a friend's house watching Monday Night Football in December of 1984 when uh, the announcement came across the screen that the Mets had acquired uh, perennial All-Star catcher Gary Carter, and my my heart nearly fell out of my chest. But uh, you know, obviously, it was a great move for the Mets. Uh, it did you know in, interfere with my progression, but. You know, such as life, and uh, Gary and I uh, became friends. Uh, we, we had our moments, but uh, what a great player he was, and uh, what a great leader he was, and what a great career he had. But he, you know, it, it, it did present a roadblock for me uh, going forward. And but uh, from '86 uh, through 1990, I was a member of the New York Mets. and uh, at the major league level and had so many great moments. Yes, I would have loved to have gotten the chance to play more. Yes, I would have loved to have gotten a chance to be the number one guy, more so than I, than I was, but uh, nonetheless, I had great teammates. We, we we were great teams. Had they had uh, wild cards back then, we would have been in the postseason every year. But Unfortunately, it was just uh, the East and the West, and we came up short we finished second in three of those years and one in two years but it was a great time to be in new york Matt and i have great memories that i cherish
2: gary carter liked you so much that he followed you when you went to los angeles to the dodgers (laughs) that
1: was uh that was a bit unusual that that's another interesting story but uh I know we we don't have all night to talk, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, was uh, kind of crazy. I thought I had escaped uh, the shadow of Gary Carter, and uh, lo and behold, he he uh, comes back. I, I, I dare not say to haunt me, but uh, it was uh, it was you know something that uh, I. I started writing a book a couple two years ago about it, and I've hit a couple of roadblocks on certain aspects of my life that I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I want to go there or not. But, but anyway, uh, I had some, uh, as I said, wonderful moments. But uh, as we all know, we all read, all have heard stories of uh, the 1980s New York Mets. Uh, well, not only were we talented and good on the field and and, and very brash and, and very bold and, and very confident in ourselves, but the uh, off the field lifestyle that uh, many of us were, uh, were were caught in became something that uh, caused me a lot of a lot of pain and a lot of destruction uh, later on in life. Uh, addiction to alcohol, and the use of drugs and uh, the partying and lifestyle and, and that uh, several of us w- w- were caught up into—I certainly pay the price for, for that lifestyle. Is uh, what was what's fun and what was once really exciting, and it, it was so cool to be, you know, partying and hanging out with uh, not only teammates and Major League players, but movie stars, rock stars, television stars, athletes from other sports the who's who in New York. Uh, when you were a member of the New York Mets in the 1980s, nothing was not available to you. And, uh, it was uh, a crazy lifestyle, and, uh, you know, I, I paid the price for it later on. But uh, And even even during that time, you know, it, it became a distraction, and uh, certainly uh, uh, I battled the Dixon for many years, but by the grace of God, I, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. In uh, January of 2012, after many years of struggling with addiction, uh, I gave my life to Christ. And uh, I've been set free and been redeemed and born again. And I have uh, will be eight years clean and sober and, and free from uh, the bondage that I, I once was uh, uh, bound in and uh, I just give God the glory and, and I'm so thankful to be free of that but uh, what was once uh, meant to be fun and you know exciting and, and entertaining and and rewarding and, and all of that uh, ultimately turned out to be something uh, very dark and uh, I was in a very dark place for several years mm. uh, uh, th- 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 that uh, was then and this is now and it's uh, as uh, the Bible says in Second Corinthians 5.17, If any man that be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, everything has become new. And uh, that's uh, one of the many, many, many scripture verses that uh, I adhere to and believe in and, and, and look upon as who I am today. And I'm not that same guy, but... Uh, Alcohol addiction and drug use and drug addiction is is a is a horrible trap uh, that uh, so many people have uh, found themselves in, and certainly I I, I I'm one of them. But uh, I am one of the many miracles that have been freed from that lifestyle, and uh, I'm very thankful for that.
3: Well, uh, God bless you that you were able to beat your your addictions to demons. It was, I know it was. It was hard to overcome, but, you know, God bless you that you've done that. Now, since you mentioned that, uh, we know Daryl Strawberry had his also uh, problems, and now he's a minister, and uh, Dwight Goodenough as, as he has his problem, and he actually relapsed recently. Have you been in touch with Daryl at doc recently? I have. You have?
1: I, I have. I, I speak to Daryl quite a bit. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was at, at our Met's. 25th uh, anniversary of our '86 world series championship team uh where i saw a, a, a new daryl i saw a, a glow on daryl i saw a different daryl and, and and it really piqued my interest and i was still in my drunkenness at that time and uh, like several of my other teammates we were we were there for the party and uh, we had a big time but uh then again, I was really miserable at that time in my life because of the addiction and the poor lifestyle I was living and the choices I was making because of that. But uh, Daryl, really, I saw something different in him, and it was about three months later when I when I, I you know I, I surrendered and uh, my life changed radically. So Daryl's been there with for me and with me from from the beginning of my transformation, and and I've i 've had Daryl come to speak at uh, my church here he's been to visit and and has come uh, as he's doing traveling all over the country sharing the gospel of Christ, Jesus Christ and, and sharing his testimony I, I do the same on a much smaller scale I don't I don't have the name uh, or the brand that Daryl Strawberry does but I, I, he and I both are, are in in the, in the evangelism aspect of life where we're sharing our testimonies and trying to, to lead others to Christ, but matter of fact, Daryl and, and I were in communication when, when Doc had his latest incidences earlier this summer, and uh, we had been trying to, to get to Doc. I, I, I've i had a, a constant line of communication with Doc for, for a while now, trying to encourage him. Uh, you know, and he's had He's had the times of sobriety, no question, over the last ten years. But it, it it would come and it would go, and he just really doesn't have an accountability partner up there. He really he's tried hard, but it, it, you can't do it in your own strength. It, it's only through Jesus Christ can can one be healed from something that is, is so powerful when when the enemy gets a stronghold in you and, and you're not. Connected to the Lord. The enemy can take you further than you ever dreamed you'd go. It costs you more than you could ever pay. And he'd keep you longer than you ever dreamed you would be. And uh, it, it, it it's happened to, to all of us that have, have dealt with addiction, certainly. But Dwight has fought it and fought it. He's sought he's help at times. Uh, God love him. He is such an amazingly good person. And uh, I pray for him all the time. Darryl, I thought I had him convinced to come down to Mississippi to the Christian Addiction Recovery Program uh, that uh, I went through and Daryl has come and he's been a partner in, in this program he's seen the good work that, that this program has done and, and the miracles that have come through this program uh, and he went to visit Daryl uh, Dwight and, and encouraged him to come but the next day Dr text me and said he was going to go through this outpatient program in new jersey and i last text i had but it was about two weeks ago and he had about nine or ten weeks of sobriety he is doing good he is going through this uh, outpatient program in new jersey that uh he claims that he he wants to do it this time he he wants to do it for him he wants to do it for for the right reasons and uh uh, you know, I pray for him every day, I, I hope, and, and pray that he can. But he can't do it on his own. And, and uh, you know, that's part of me wants him to get out of New York, New Jersey, for a while and, 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 and just come separate himself from from that world. I, I, I tell Doc a lot of times, and, and he kind of, I don't know that he took offense, but I said, Dwight, you're not Doc Gooden no more. That guy is gone. You're the White Gooden, the name that your mother and father gave you. I said you got to let go of who Doc Gooden is and who he was. He's no longer here. You're the White, and you have a future and a hope in Jesus Christ that you can do great things going forward. But he is just caught up in, in into that. He's he, he's trapped, and uh, I, I, I feel for him. I love him to death. He's such an amazing guy. Got a heart of gold. He, he, he loves uh, kids. He loves people. He loves laughing. Uh, and and uh, so, you know, uh, hopefully he's on the right track. Uh, I pray that he is. But what, what a great guy. And, and uh, you know, I, I just wish the best for Dwight.
3: Yeah, we, we all do. We all do. Barry, uh, today, do you still run your baseball academy down in Mississippi? and and you're still uh and you are you still involved with the the shuckers the uh you are okay they're they're with uh the brewers correct
1: yes they are the brewers double a affiliate i don't have a quote unquote bricks and mortar facility anymore i did prior to hurricane katrina but i i still do a ball with that league for high school players i'll have uh uh, 48 kids that that I take on every fall, the high school guys from this this area, and uh, we play uh, twice a week for six weeks, and then we have our, our showcase games at our beautiful double A ballpark in downtown Biloxi, literally a few hundred yards from where I grew up. But my 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 ambas- I'm an ambassador for that ball club. Now. It's a it's a it's a. Very long story, but it, uh, it's minor league baseball here in my hometown is a seed that I planted 25 plus years ago at the tail end of my playing career, and I worked for it for a long, long time. And and uh, basically, what I had done to, to bring minor league baseball here was stolen from me in front, and, and someone else came uh, that I had originally brought in and. and Claimed it as his, and, and uh, really uh, uh, backstabbed me and caused me uh, a lot of pain and uh, and a lot of issues. But I, I prayed to God and asked God to as it be your will that my rightful place would uh, would be made with this organization. And and it took a little time and then a lot of prayer and a lot of faith. But uh, ultimately, uh, that that person in that business entity has been uh, removed from the, the situation I don't have an ownership stake in the ball club that I would have should have had but I don't have regrets over that I, I, I never did this to make money off of it this was a dream and a vision and a goal just like me being a big league ball player this was something I wanted for my hometown community I I played in big cities and small towns all over this country and Canada and Mexico and South America, and I just loved the game of baseball, and I wanted it desperately for my hometown. And thankfully, five years ago, we got a ballpark built, we got a deal done, and uh, we've had uh, tremendous success on the field. The Brewers organization have really stockpiled some great talent that they have brought through here. We've had Justin Hura. we've had uh, Orlando Arcea, we've had Josh Hader here, we've had Brandon Woodruff here, these are guys that are really making the name of the big league for the Brewers, so it, it's been, been amazing I, I do various things uh, I'm an ambassador for the club I do some broadcasting, I do some promotions I, I'm a, a liaison between the Brewers and our organization here and and uh, I'm involved in baseball, but I'm not in it day to day. I'm there for the home games. I do a free game show, a uh, live free game show on the field. I interact with the players and try to encourage them and, and, and uh, inspire them if I can. But I share my testimony. I, I speak at uh, baseball chapel. I, I do whatever the Lord uh, commands me to do. I try to do I'm I'm it never will be perfect. Uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm a, a sinner saved by grace. I'm a, a born-again Christian, and and I, I love God, and I love what uh, Jesus has done for all of us, and uh, I'm just very thankful. Uh, I'm humbled by it. I love the game of baseball. I love being an ambassador for, for our minor league franchise here. I love being at the ballpark. Uh, I love what I do. I love uh, my wife. I have a beautiful wife and uh, a family that uh, I, I love, and, and I don't get to see as often uh, as I'd like. we are kind of scattered around, but uh, I, I, I'm a blessed man, and uh, I'm just just uh, very
2: thankful. Barry, the, you don't even have to comment on this, but I have to tell you the one thing you just said about we, who we all refer to as Doc Gooden and that he has to realize that he's not Doc anymore, uh that he's, you know, he's Dwight Gooden. I mean, that's yeah. baseball is, you know, it was a big part of his life, but he has a, a life to live, uh, whether he does anything with baseball or not. But and and like I said, you don't have to comment, but what you said, the fact that you just said he has to realize he's Dwight, that was just I, I thought that was beautiful actually. So I just I just want you to know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm he- hearing what you're saying, and, and I, we, as fans, we put these, these players up on these pedestals, and then they, I think they feel this pressure to live that life, and then when they don't, it, it, it's devastating to the fans, to them. And it's, it's not fair to them, and, and you are so right. He needs to live his life as Dwight Gooden. So, again, you don't even need to say anything to that, but I just, that was a beautiful thing that you just said. It really was. Thank you so much. And, uh, and uh, one more thing, you know, about Doc, I mean, or Dwight, as, uh, as uh,
1: his, his mom and dad gave him the name of, you know, here's a guy, what, 19 years old that had the most, Phenomenal season that you could ever imagine for a pitcher uh, in 1985, and there's nowhere to go but down from there. I mean, and, and, you know, I, I'm not making excuses for Dwight, and uh, I don't think he'll make them for himself either. Uh, but the distractions and, and everything that that was going on in New York during that time period, and just all of the back that led to Darrell and Dwight in that time frame and, and being a member of the Mets and the success of the Mets during that time. I mean, it was a world for me as a, a 25 for an older player, uh, as a backup player, as a guy that uh, was nowhere near the limelight that these guys were in by any stretch of the imagination. But I know what it was like for me personally. I can't imagine in those two guys' shoes during that time, and, and just everything that was just flying by them, and, you know, everything that was swirling in and around them. It's no wonder, you know, anybody could survive something like that. So, uh, I, I don't make excuses for for Daryl and Dwight. I love them to death. They're both great friends, great teammates. Oh, excuse me, but, you know, that was, that was, uh, an amazing time and, and there's just so much that was thrown at them and they were so young and they, they were so, uh, impressionable and they were so trusty of people and so many people did them wrong and, and used them and, and, you know, uh, they, they didn't twist their arm. I, I think, you know, I, I dare not, like I say, make excuses for them, but, uh. You know, a lot of people in in the same shoes would have made the same mistakes. And, you know, I I, I don't fault them. You know, we we are who we are. And God created us all for a purpose. And, uh, you know, Daryl was was, uh, very clear in in his testimonies. Uh, You know, I've heard him many, many times uh, share his testimony. But that's what he talked about. He didn't become a man until he took that uniform off and he became a Christian until he came to Christ. And then, you know, as the Bible tells us, you know, you, when you're a child you spoke like a child and you're you know, but as you grow up in a man you gotta you gotta put away those childish things and you know, baseball sometimes allows us to to be and to live that inner child life and to have that exuberance and that enthusiasm and that excitement for it. And that's why baseball is the greatest game ever. But if you're not careful, it can be a very dangerous lifestyle. Mm. And there's many of players that have uh, have fallen by the wayside and have gone through very similar circumstances that, and very similar life happen. But maybe they're not, you know, on the front back page of uh, uh, of the newspapers and of the tabloids. That, the way that Dwight and Darrell were because we were in New York and we were the media capital of the world and we were the most high-profile team that was in all of sports, not just mm-hmm. baseball, but in all of sports during that time, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, like I said, no excuses, never would make excuses, but if there's ever a time and a place and, 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 a, and a circumstance to, to, uh, to get caught up into in it all, we live that and uh, thankfully we've we've survived it uh, we still have a few teammates that are that are still battling it still stuck in it if you will but we we're praying for them I love getting together with our guys we had a, a mini reunion of a partial some of the players uh, a few weeks ago uh, in New York and uh, got to see Daryl and, and Sid Fernandez and uh, Kevin Elster and and uh, Terry Leach and uh, a few other guys I, I'm, I'm forgetting off of Raphael Santana, Doug Sisk but uh, there was another group that got together I think last weekend uh, with several of the other guys so uh, it was a great team it was a great time to be in New York Met. great memories but uh, there are tragedies as well as triumphs in this story And but in the end those who come to know Jesus know what victory is all about, and I'm thankful that I have have uh, come to know Jesus in a close, personal way, because I have victory in Jesus.
2: Now, I, I know we're not going to keep you much longer, Barry. You've been fantastic. But uh, one of our listeners, Eli Abamer, he asked about your catching David Cohn, uh, watching his career. I happened to see some things on the Internet that you and David Cohn are actually friends, and, and and I guess you room together, and there's an odd couple situation. Can can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with David Cohn?
1: Yes. Uh, well, you know, in the spring training of '87, we made the trade to bring David over, and Ed Byrne went to Kansas City. There were other players within that trade, but uh, it was, you know, but David came over and. He just happened to be, they put his locker right next to me at Huggins Stengel Field there in St. Petersburg. And I mean, from the day we first met, the first, you know, uh, we became great friends. And uh matter of fact, the first time he warmed up in the bullpen at uh, Al Lang Field in St. Petersburg, uh, I I I literally whipped on a couple of spiders he threw me. I was in the bullpen warming him up before he went in the game. I mean, I've never seen breaking balls like that. Of course, it was coming off the bay. There was a strong wind blowing across the field that that, that I'm sure helped. But uh, <clears throat> Dave and I, that first year, we ended up uh, sharing an apartment together for part of the season. And I'm a I'm a neat freak. I'm a I'm. You know, everything's got a place. I, I've got, I'm very meticulous about it, OCD if you want to call it that. Uh, and David is basically a slob, and <laughs> so we definitely had some OCD and slob uh, battles between us. But he's a dear friend. I had the pleasure of being with him uh, when I was up in New York last week. I actually went to a Yankees playoff game and had a chance to. To visit with him. He's one of my best friends in the game, and, and always, and from day one that we met, and you know, even after my playing career ended, I would always go to New York for the postseason and, and be with his family and and, and uh, Andrew Levy, his marketing agent, as our my dear friend as well. And so I, I, I've maintained that connection with David all all through the years. Matter of fact, just sent a text to Andrew today that uh. You know, if David takes this uh, Yankee pitching coach job, which he interviewed for, I said, I want to remind David that it's a package deal. And he's got to bring old B. Lyons with him as his bullpen guy if he takes that job.
3: <laughs> we hope so.
1: He's, he's a he's a great baseball guy. One thing that I shared with Andrew today was, that uh, you know, is David really committed to this because he's he's a wonderful amazing broadcaster does a great job for that but he's only you know 80 90 games a season and doesn't have to go on the road that much and I know he would be a heck of a pitching coach but you know my, my concern is or you know that that that's 24/ 7 11 months out of 12 months a year when you you're a pitching coach and and the pressure in New york you know do you want that actually? You know, I just want to make sure that he knows what, that that's what he wants because he's got a pretty pretty good gig as, as we speak now but uh, he's toyed with the idea of, you know, threw it out there that he would be interested if the Mets wanted to talk about manager who knows, maybe one day but he studied this analytical stuff I mean, he he's as prepared as anybody I've ever been around as, as a pitcher I mean, he would be working his mechanics in the apartment in front of a mirror, you know, just 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 rhythm and timing and, and everything with his motion. I mean, the, the guy never stopped. He was an amazing pitcher and, and a competitor like nobody else and uh, uh, a great friend and, you know, whatever he really wants to do, he can do it and he will do it extremely well. Uh, my, my, my wonder, my my question in my mind, may not be a question in his mind, does he really want to make that commitment to, to devote, you know, all the time that's needed to be a Yankee pitching coach. Not that he can't do it, he can't. And, he, and if he puts his mind to it, he will be the best, he, you know, best that, that he can. It's just whether you want to sacrifice some of the freedoms that he has uh, in order to do that. that that's his decision, and Andrew said, well, first they have to offer him the job before he really has to worry about that. But, uh, you know, we'll just wait and see what happens. I hadn't reached out to David on that. I know he's got, uh, you know, he, he's got a hopefully a decision to make and uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, he's one of uh, 30 amazing guys, uh, 35, maybe 40, whatever the number may be, of guys that. Uh, were my teammates during that uh, mid- and late-80s run with the New York Mets, and uh, I cherish my time and memories with each and every one of them, and uh, thankful i have been been a part of that.
3: Oh Barry, you've been very generous with your time. We really appreciate it. I have one last question, uh, one last baseball question before I let you go, and I, I heard a rumor. I wonder if it's true. Is it true that you were the last batter to face Tom Seaver in his career? Yes. I don't know if I was the actual last
1: hitter in that day, but uh, that's uh, a very interesting time, and certainly with all that is you know going on this summer with the '69 Mets fiftieth anniversary, and of course, Tom retiring from the public due to uh, his dementia. You know, I'm saddened by that. One of the main pitchers, but Tom Stever at the end of his road when he was with the Red Sox, as you I'm sure well know, when the Mets won, when we beat the Red Sox in 86, he was uh, injured, and he never retired that winter, he never signed with anybody, he never officially retired, and then, lo and behold, our 87 season starts, and, and Doc went to rehab, and I don't know if it was Fabio or Darling got hurt, I think Fabio had elbow surgery, and Suddenly, we were short on starting pitching, and Seaver had, you know, healed from his knee injury from the year before, and I guess started privately working out. And one thing led to another, in the Met and the uh, Mets signed him. And he pitched at Triple A one game, and he traveled with us and threw some bullpens, and and then we had a couple of simulated games. They called it. Uh, where we're, where the backup players, myself, Dave Magadan, Tim Tupple, if uh, if Wally was starting that night, and, and one or two other guys would uh, come out early in the afternoon. The first time we did it was up in Montreal. We we hit Tom pretty good. Of course, you know he's Tom Steyer, one of the greatest pitchers of all time. But at this point, his life in his career, he's not that same Tom Seaver. Let me go ahead and make that very clear. Right. But, yet, he still, if he had a full spring training and a full time to work out, he still would have been a very good pitcher. But, but anyway, his, he was trying to get ready in a hurry, so to speak, and, and had pitched been a while, and, you know, in his 40s, and uh, it was late, late uh, in his... In his uh, career, if you will. But uh, so, uh, anyway, we did, uh, we hit him pretty good in Montreal. And I don't know if it was four or five days later, we were going to do it one more time uh, at Jay Stadium. And that day, I had two line drives my first two times up off of Tom. And the third time up, he threw one under my chin and knocked me on my butt. Oh. Uh, and uh, the next, very next mm-hmm. pitch, I hit a home run in the bullpen and left center at State Stadium. And I proceeded to go six for six off of him. Ah. And basically, he walked off the field that afternoon, and the next day, the press and was done. And they had a press conference the next day at State Stadium. And I wasn't there. I didn't see it live, but uh, I was told that uh, one of the reporters asked Tom Seaver, who, who in the press conference, who was the toughest hitter he ever faced, and I'm sure it was with tongue-in-cheek and with a, a kind of a, a, a snicker or a grin, but he, he declared that Barry Lyons was the toughest hitter he ever <laughs> faced, so I, I can take that with me forever. And some people know the story. Some people hear of it. Every year down at Mets Fantasy Camp, uh, I'm fortunate blessed to be invited to that for the past seven or eight years. Every year that we have that full session with all the campers, uh, Howie Rose wants to always want to bring that story up because Howie was there witnessing it. And every time I see him, he remembers. Remember that day with fever? <laughs> Obviously, I'll always remember it. But you know what? A, what a you know the more I've watched, I saw the documentary on Tom that Fox did the other night. Yeah, they actually showed him that day on the mound. They didn't show any of the action that was going on or any of the other participants, but I think they just showed that as the last time he was seen in a Mets uniform. But uh, what an amazing guy, what an amazing career he has, what a, you know, just a, an icon in New York sports, to say the least. And to have that little bit of, you know, that little uh, asterisk there at the tail end of his story, of his career, you know, I mean, it, it was, it was nothing official, but it's certainly a memory that I, that I cherished uh, and, and uh, something that, uh, you know, it, 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 it brings a smile to my face, but uh, I, I don't know that Tom would ever remember it or, or you know, follow it.
3: Well, uh, Barry, we thank you for, the, for that. Uh, thank you for joining us on Baseball and BBQ. God bless you. God bless the work you're doing down in, in Mississippi. I know you uh, were very involved with the aftermath of Katrina and and the uh, bringing baseball back to Mississippi. And we thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure, well, pleasure talking with you. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Barry. Thank you guys so much, and
1: uh, thank you for what you guys do, man. I, I, I love what you guys are doing, and and, and uh, allowing people a platform to share their stories. And uh, I, I I can't thank you enough for for uh, allowing me to be a part of this tonight and, and for allowing me to share my story. Uh, and uh, and you guys have been very, very kind, and, and I wish you guys the best. Thank,
2: Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Barry. Have a great night.
3: Yes, sir, you too. All right, bye. bye. Man, I really enjoyed that interview with Barry Lyons. It, it, I find his life fascinating.
2: Yeah, I did too. And it's just, it's, it's so interesting to hear about his life inside baseball outside of baseball as well as the the players that we know like he said about Gooden, you know we know him as a player barry knows him as a person hearing that was it was terrific it certainly was and
3: the way he is controlling his demons it's always every day is a battle and he's just coming out so so well he's an inspiration to everybody I, I really think he is he's terrific yeah it
2: just it doesn't matter what you do in life there it People are people. And just, you know, he was a, a Major League Baseball player, but at the end of the day, the career ends, and he's just a person, and and just the the time that he took to talk to us was really enjoyable.
3: Yeah, and again, thank you, Barry Lyons. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much, Barry. And if you have any questions or any uh, comments on it, please give us a call, 516-855-8214. Email us, bbq at gmail.com. Even leave a, a comment on our Facebook page. What do we have next, Len?
2: Well, again, I've said it time and time again. This podcast, like we just had with Barry Lyons, gives us the opportunity to meet fantastic people, to talk to them. Sometimes we get to meet them in person. And in this particular case, we did. So, Jeff and I are trying to do a, what would you call it, a barbecue tour. Yes. Right? Yes. We could say that we started with Greg Luzinski, but that was uh, that could be our spot number one when we went to Bulls Barbecue. Well, why don't we do that? <laughs> okay, and now we had the opportunity to go to a place called Smokehouse. It's S M O K hyphen H A U S. It's in Garden City, New York, and it was worth the trip. They are right now; they're celebrating their one-year anniversary. And we met with Manny Voomvarakis. What? what? Who did we meet with? Manny Vumvarakis.
3: Say that ten times fast. No, don't yeah. do
2: that. And uh, hopefully I'm, I am saying the name correctly, but Manny was just fantastic. Again, great guy. We sat with him. We talked about barbecue. We talked about the restaurant business, his restaurant specifically. And then he took us on a tour of the kitchen. We had a great meal. Brought at us out all sorts of different foods from there: wings, uh, brisket, ribs, pulled pork, pulled chicken. What? Yeah. What? Um. Oh, port- porchetta. Right, porchetta. I mean, if you're in the area, or even if you want to make a trip, it's worth it. Great place.
3: Right, and if you want to go, email them or uh, visit their website. It's www.smokehouse.com, it's S-M-O-K-H-A-U-S dot com.
2: And their address is 712th Street, Garden City, New York. You gave their phone number? 516-986-8568.
3: And now, let's hear from Manny
2: Vumvarakis. Baseball and barbecue is extremely excited to be here with at Smokehouse Barbecue in Garden City, New York, with none other than Manny Vumarakis, And as you guys know, I'm terrible with names. We're just going to call him Manny V. Welcome, boys. <laughs> and we,
5: so Manny, one year, right? One year, November, this restaurant, right? right. That's right. November 14th is going to mark our one-year anniversary.
2: Happy anniversary. Thank you. And uh, we are actually celebrating, that sounds weird to say, but we're celebrating two years yeah. in December. Yeah. <laughs> and they said it wouldn't last. <laughs> so Manny, Long um, Island, New York, New York um, in general, not exactly uh, known as a barbecue mecca. Uh, that's changing, though. It is changing. So how did you start this whole thing? I mean, becoming a, a, you know this... Barbecue Pitmaster uh, on Long
5: Island? Well, it started probably about 15 years ago. Heading upstate to uh, Hancock, New York with some pals. Primarily for weekend getaways and then hunting trips. Um, it was an uh, interesting bunch of guys but they were all foodies and as a group, they had a lot of talent. Um, culinary talent. So we would whip up all this fantastic food. And one of the, one of the guys there... Um, wood was a passionate, you know, pitmaster, um, uh, and we started smoking up on a simple Weber kettle, and you know, I, I fell in love with the whole approach of just cooking with wood and um, just you know using time and low temperatures to kind of allow the meat to get very tender, and little by little, that kind of that passion really grew into an obsession. I learned as much as I could on my own, and then I looked for proper tutelage and reached out to Myron Mixon, right. who I um, you know, have a lot of respect for, the most winningest man in barbecue. I went and trained with him at his compound in Unadilla, Georgia, and then committed to using his equipment. So a lot happened over those 15 years, but that's how the trail kind of came about. Now why Garden City, why Long Island, why are we here? Well, I spent almost 20 years in capital markets, mostly trained derivatives for various banks and hedge funds, so it's a, it wasn't the, tr- I guess, traditional transition from one career to another, but I was passionate about the craft, I was passionate about food, and I had an idea that was in the works for about three years to turn around and first offer an amazing product done tr- in a traditional way. but to also offer it in a format and setting which is kind of approachable. We can kind of offer it for customers in a quick service format and also in a full service format. So we're a little bit of a hybrid, which is a little unique, you know, for lunch we have customers coming in here, really they need to get in and out in about 15 minutes. If you go to a barbecue restaurant that doesn't necessarily work, Um, at least not around here, maybe in central Texas or, you know, in the south. So we wanted to give them the ability to kind of walk the queue cafeteria style, grab some grubs, sit down and eat. Now at night when the tempo slows down a little bit, we really wanted to give customers the ability to be able to sit down and get full service, get drinks, get uh, cocktails and what have you. So that's how it all came about. So then
2: you are not, and I, and I told you I did some uh, stalking on the internet, so I know that this isn't your first career this is like your where where everyone says you know that you get people who say oh I haven't decided what I'm going to do when I grow up <laughs> right and they've been doing their career for 20 years and so this was basically a change for you this was a major change you went from financial to the restaurant business
5: right I mean look I loved the time spent managing assets I have some of my best friendships with guys and gals that I worked with, but as you get older, you do a little soul searching. And what I I got to a point in my life where I said, "Well, what mark do I want to leave from here on in?" Okay, I made some contributions to capital markets, and I wanted to see what the next, you know, 50 years were going to hold for me. And to open up a restaurant and. You know, whether from concept to execution, is an em- it's just an enormous amount of work and effort, and a lot of a lot of psychological soul searching. It's not it's not an easy uh, feat. So I decided that if I was going to do this tra- or make this transition, it would have to happen when I had s- some energy and stamina. So I said, okay, you know, I'll talk to my family, you know. The- And then committed to myself, and we decided to go forward. And it's a deep
2: financial investment as well. It is. Before you open, to just to convert the place, I don't know what this building was
5: before, uh, but was it a restaurant? Was it set up for a restaurant? I'll give you a little history. So this building used to be the garage for the hearses. So we are right next to uh, Fairchild's son's funeral home, who is the landlord, and they... um, You know, back in the day when there was a fleet of cars they needed for garage space. I don't remember when, but probably 15 plus years ago, they decided to turn this space into office space. And I believe a a law firm had it for a decade until they decided to move out. And then the landlord decided to gut-renovate the building and introduce a, a retail presence. We... When we found out it was on the market and available, we proposed a restaurant, which is a separate project. You know, opening up a restaurant that didn't exist as a restaurant is a, a, you know, a substantial amount of work, just local permits and approvals, whether it's from the health department or from the village. But, you know, it, we, we just kind of hunkered down and did the work and about nine or 12 months later, it was done. Let
3: me ask you about your cooking style, your equipment that you have back there you you what type of smoker or what's your style of cooking for for this this place
5: That's you know style you know we want to develop our own style, but it's a traditional American barbecue now you know re- regional barbecue, whether you're in Texas with primarily beef or where you're in the Carolinas, which is pork. Right. You know, here we have all different meats. Um, we, you know, we smoke with a traditional stick burner, and are, you know, we, ha- we buy a blend of wood that's been seasoned, or aged really, which is predominantly oak, but we have some maple, and uh, we have some apple, and you know, so there, there's other woods that are prevalent in the area, so we're not limited to just cooking with pecan, for example.
2: Like you said, the uh, every state, you know, the major barbecue states, the Carolinas, Texas, uh, you know, right, they all have, so they either have specific meats, you know, Texas is beef, and the Carolinas is pork, and then you've got some areas that have lamb, mm-hmm. you know, and even mutton, right, mm-hmm. type of lamb, right? Um, and then, of course, there's sauces. You know, some places have the vinegar-based, and some have the tomato-based, and some have the mustard. And, and, you know, some are dry with the rubs and, the, and all that. So New York is considered, you know, it's always called New York's the melting pot, right? So you have to, you have a distinctive style, or maybe you don't even have a distinctive. I mean, you, the influence is that you can take, you can do whatever you want with this place. How do you determine, you know, I'm going to use this kind of sauce for my ribs or this for or even the meats what what how do you determine that like
5: you know you hit the nail on the head uh, Len. New York is the melting pot of the world okay at least definitely in the US and when coming up with a menu you know one way I could kind of describe our menu we have traditional American offerings so we got brisket we've got pork we uh, we have ribs we have wings But one way I can kind of describe it is, you know, traditional American barbecue meets ethnic street food. So our, I guess, our individualized meal offering, um, which I think is a fairly affordable, uh, I guess, daily, you know, staple for individuals coming in. And it was kind of done by design. We, We take a list of protein which is all smoked our pulled pork we have some smoked chicken we have some chopped brisket we have some porchetta we have some shredded beef these are all offered either in a barbecue sandwich with some coleslaw and pickles but it could be put in a pita sandwich and now you've gone Greek or Mediterranean if you put tzatziki on it it's a Greek offering if you go hummus and tahini which we also have it's a Middle Eastern offering You could have a burrito sandwich. Now we have a Latin influence, okay? You can have a rice bowl or a salad bowl, something a little healthier, something gluten-free. So we really have, you know, on a a very simplified basis, customers can come in and eat barbecue. Which, what is barbecue? Barbecue isn't just meat with sauce. Barbecue is something cooked low and slow where you get the flavor of the wood in the meat and you just can enjoy the craft. But you could come in and have a different dish, which is really a a base protein with some, you know, uh, I found when I was doing research and what does it take to make some pork carnitas or whether it takes some chicken, you know. There are some unique spices that may be just for Greek, but most of them have a core of three or four different spices. And that's what we kind of season our meats with. And that's what gives us the ability to be uh, uh, an offering that has... That has reached to all different cultures. You know, you'll come, and you may even notice it later today. You have customers from all different walks of life, uh, socioeconomic classes, and ethnicities coming in here. Whether you want to do something that maybe more touches more on a packed rim basis, or something that's unique to just Italian culture, we have it.
3: We're here at Smokehouse in Garden City, and I, and we're in the afternoon. And it looks like the place is starting to fill up. Mm-hmm. Lunchtime. what is the very popular dish? What are, what are, what are, you, what are your customers buying at this time?
5: They're buying a lot of uh, rice bowls, salad bowls, and sandwiches. It's easy to eat. It's fairly affordable. You know, you come in, you get a rice bowl with some, let's say, chopped brisket on it, and you get some beans, some coleslaw, some collard greens. You could even have a little bit of, you know, pickled onions on there, and now you get got a full meal and you're in and out, you know, $12, 13 okay? But if you have the time and want to sit and get your rack of ribs with mac and cheese and, and some Cajun corn, you can do that. Our most popular items across the board are the traditionals. People love the ribs and the brisket. Our wings are probably some of the wing, the best wings that I feel in Long Island. I, or, you know, I hope that one day they can be recognized more on a state basis. We got beautiful wings that we smoke for about one and a half to two hours, completely cooking them to temp, and then we blast chill them. You know, we're going through let's not go into numbers, but a a lot of um, we go through cases and cases of wings a a week, and when it's time to serve them, we just literally just flash fry them to crisp up the skin, warm them up, and then. you know, then we'll coat them. Uh, our most popular rub is our dry rub, primarily because it's just a delicious blend of spices that aren't very, very hot. It's, it's got a little bit of a spice, but not, you know, more on the heat scale. But we also offer buffalo. We offer Korean coating, uh, barbecue uh, sauce. And then we make a mango habanero, which is very hot for those that like the heat.
2: Now, you get a place like, let's go to Texas, right? Mm-hmm. Franklin's Barbecue. Famous mm-hmm. barbecue place it's known for the people waiting in line they wait in line at dawn basically Mm -hmm. and somebody comes takes their order they they move up they get what they want and when they sell out they close Mm -hmm. but but restaurants here in new york they can't do that Mm -hmm. and not only that but he's making like okay brisket is a staple Mm -hmm. but then certain days he's making ribs certain days he's making uh, turkey breasts so he has different things he makes but you're making everything every day mm-hmm. and you have to have enough so that your customers don't come in and, and are disappointed, but yet at the same time, it's not like you can it's not like somebody comes in and says, I I want to have ribs, you ran out and you could just put your you know, ribs on. Well, okay, you got five hours to wait. So how do you figure out I guess being the restaurant business, you have to figure out How much do I need? How much will be left over? I mean, you don't want to end the day and have all this food left over, and yet you don't want to fall short. Right,
5: it's not not easy. Um, It took a while to get to the point where we could judge demand. And if you kind of check our social media sites, you know, early on customers, their biggest complaint was I showed up at 8.30 or eight o'clock and they were out of ribs or they were out of brisket. You know, we do run out. We don't run out of a lot of things every day but that's just the nature of barbecue. It's not like a burger you throw on a grill and then five minutes or six minutes later, it's done. It just took a while to get to this point. And, you know, food and inventory management is one of the key skills to be able to kind of run this business right. Um, And when we go back there, I'll give you guys a tour. I'll show you how how we cook it, where we hold it, um, and how we offer it when you go on the other side.
2: Yeah, because you know, people think you know you you have a good product right somebody says somebody says to you, "Wow, your ribs are really good you should you should open a restaurant oh, yeah, that's a good idea, but what people don't realize is it's not just having this great food product there's so much more that goes into it the, the planning of, of it. and and that's got to be something that you know made you a little crazy in the beginning, maybe still does I don't know
5: uh, inventory management, getting the right product out, serving it um Uh, in the right way Um, you know it was a a little bit of a learning experience I mean I have family that have been in the uh, restaurant business for 40 plus years so I did get help on logistics but I'll tell you what was the hardest even though I was prepped unless you're in the pit or you're you know in the game you have to learn it yourself Uh, it's really building a team uh, of reliable And very loyal uh, employees that will come to work with you every single day with a smile and want to help you succeed and build a brand and that took a little longer than I expected but I'm blessed at this stage very truly grateful that I have a wonderful team from Mike uh, that you met uh, our general manager um, to staff in the back to in prep for our servers
3: I'm seeing uh, the waiters taking orders on iPads. Mm-hmm. Technology has changed the business. Has technology changed anything the way you use the smoker or cook any equipment that has changed with the advance of technology?
5: Okay, so you brought up a question which is uh, tr- true and dear to me. I mean, I'm, I'm an engineer by tr- by schooling. Um, and out of all places, you know, went to MIT. So you figured I could kind of learn a couple of things about technology. Uh, technology was always, front and foremost, a driving force in setting up this restaurant. Um, we're very automated, uh, almost more automated than, a, uh, than a, a, a standard barbecue restaurant. Our staff uses handhelds to take orders. All the orders get fired into the kitchen. Uh, we are uh, linked up with most delivery partners, uh, Grubhub, which is seamless, Uber, uh DoorDash. we're just waiting for them to work out some logistics but we've already kind of built the interface with them so now customers or and ourselves so we also have our own delivery t- uh, team uh, for customers that are within three miles of our store so individuals could go online and place an order it automatically gets processed by our point of sale system automatically shows up on a big screen inside the kitchen really don't have to pick up the phone staff get Tickets to print up in different stations. They do their job, they process the order, and then it kind of heads downstream to someone who packages it and puts it in beds. So we are very streamlined, very technology heavy. Uh, I find that technology really makes a big difference.
2: And one of the things that impressed me is as I was doing research on your restaurant, um, you know, one of the, there are numerous sites where people put reviews, but one is, which will remain nameless. But they had a lot of reviews, mostly positive. Mm-hmm. There were a couple that were just, like we would say, trolls. Mm-hmm. And you responded to every single one, which I don't know how you have the time because there were a lot of reviews, but that was a very nice touch. If I saw that I put a review, if I take the time to put a review on and then the owner of the restaurant responds to that, that, that means a lot.
5: Okay. Well, I care. I'm all in. My goal is to have 100 stores one day, so we decided to start with one, we're working on the brand, we're working on the product, we feel that our product is fairly consistent now, Uh, more and more people are finding out, Uh, we're definitely building out our catering business uh, and and our scope is all over Long Island and Queens right now, so uh, there's always time to kind of reply back to, you know, I think, I don't know, we have probably a couple hundred reviews right now, but I'll give you a, a statistic to kind of look at it a little differently. We're open a year. We're f- feeding anywhere between two and 300 people a day. Now there are some repeat customers. So let's say of those customers, we have 200 maybe unique people that we may be feeding every single day. Well, if we do the math and we're closed one day a week, you know, we're talking about ten thousand people over the course of a year, let's say, that we may have influenced by them trying our craft. So a couple hundred over ten thousand is an infinitesimally small number. So if someone took their time to write us it means that they care enough. So I wanted to show them that I care as well and thanking them for their time. And we've gotten a lot of constructive criticism. We're we're not just chasing five stars. I mean, ideally, we want to offer five-star service and food to everyone, but when we drop the ball or can do something better and customers, and there's been plenty that have suggested change, we're very nimble and and we've adapted, okay? And we've made the changes because we want to get better.
2: It's amazing to me that you you basically, you started as a backyard cooker Mm -hmm. and now you have a restaurant mm-hmm. and could have numerous ones after this. It's just mm-hmm. it's wild. It really is. It's 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 the dream, you yeah, know. Absolutely. And and the fact that you, you, you went to Myron Mixon mm-hmm. and it tell us a little bit about Myron Mixon actually. Because he's he's you hear different things about him. He comes off as one way on T V, but I hear that in person he's very different.
5: He is one of the nicest people that I've had the pleasure of working with very funny sarcastic but very very talented pitmaster and he cares deeply about his craft and he's got a, a, a you know fantastic brand I learned a lot from him I got to tell you most of the techniques that we use i mean we we've, we've adopted and made our own changes but are true to form to the way he cooks now you got a guy who's the most winningest man in barbecue if you don't really kind of just stop for a second and think he's obviously doing something right and if you can't learn from the best then you really shouldn't waste your time
4: right.
5: so we feel that um, you know we, we, we you know, our offering has a lot of his influence in it but we have made a lot of changes to be a little unique um, you know porchetta for example you won't find it in a lot of barbecue menus it's probably one of the most amazing dishes you could have we take uh, a beautiful heritage breed pork belly that we season with a Mediterranean spice profile, we add some fresh garlic in there, we roll it up, we smoke it anywhere between 12 and 14 hours, it gets sliced up, it's a magical piece of meat, you guys are going to try some later. What else that you know we could say is a little unique, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to leave a mark on other cultures, you know, it's uh, uh, on the pipeline. You know, we'd like to uh, smoke some meatballs and offer smoke known as meatballs with a beautiful tomato sauce. You know, why not? I mean, you're just you're, you're going to bake them. You're going to get the kiss of smoke in there. Right. So there's things that we're you know looking to also add that are off, uh, non-traditional as well. But Myron is a wonderful guy. I'm very thankful for his support and his team, especially with the equipment that we have in the back, and happy that. Uh, you know, it, uh, I, I chose him as my mentor.
2: So you're using Myron Mix and water smokers, then?
5: Yes, we're using his water smoker, uh, one of his water smokers right now. You guys will go see it. We're cooking some wings right now in the back. It's a good product. You know, the the technology is vetted, and I feel is um, uh, you know I don't have experience with the other the other larger names in the business, but I just see the the product after it's done. You know, when you cook with a water smoker, you're really allowing this really bay of water to heat up and steam all throughout the cook. Right. I mean, it just completely makes sense. So now you have a very moist chamber. Meat stays moist. Right. As long as you're cooking at the right temperature and you're keeping it consistent, you're not going to have a hard time
3: temperature is
2: everything yeah, yeah te- right temperature is everything the it's hooked up to a hose right it's got, well i mean we'll see it but but it's hooked up to a
5: hose i mean it's a very different technique we, we do yeah so uh, we have there's a water line that can keeps it filled during the cook process uh and we have a drain that feeds into our grease trap because that's uh, after a, especially a, a cook with the brisket and the our pork butts and the porchetta there's a lot of fat that kind of renders out that needs to be properly processed
2: now you because you're you're smoking you are really doing this is genuine barbecue Mm -hmm. the hours and hours you're pretty much going here 24 7 i mean what's the how there's somebody here probably almost all the
5: time yes we have staff here almost all the time and yeah we like the 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 ribs, the wings, the chickens—we use boneless, skinless chicken thighs for our pulled chicken. Um, you know, some of these proteins only take two to three hours to cook. The ribs take longer, and I'll talk to you about how we how we take care how we I guess cook our ribs, which is you know, more of a Myron Mixon approach. But the it's the big meats that take 12, 14, 16 hours, and those typically go on at night.
2: Yeah, your brisket, your pulled pork, the, the pork butts. Mm. I mean, I just made a pork butt uh, last weekend. <laughs> Stop and Shop had an amazing sale. It was like ninety nine cents a pound. Mm. How who can resist? So I took the pork butt. I think it was a twelve pound butt. I sliced off some steaks. Mm. So those I actually marinated in a Korean marinade. You could do so much with you pork. Can. Absolutely. And then, but I still had like ten pounds, and I and I ended up putting it on later than i wanted to i put it on like 12 o'clock and at 12:30 that night i was first taking it off mm-hmm. i and i had wrapped it i had wrapped it in butcher paper for a couple hours mm-hmm. yeah. um i don't know how much the butcher paper contributed to i think foil probably would have cooked it a little faster but i did not want to lose the bark mm-hmm. and so i'm gonna ask you about wrapping sure. but at night, luckily, was still nice out, believe it or not. We Mm -hmm. had beautiful weather a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, 12.30, I'm out there first taking it off. And, of course, you can't put a hot butt in the refrigerator. So I had to wait a couple hours as well. But 12 and a half hours later. So I can only imagine how you guys are with your brisket and your pork and how, you know.
5: Right. So most of the meats will go on between 7.30 and 8 o'clock at night okay they're of times, but we just need more product we'll throw more on in the morning and we'll cook it at a higher temperature but they go on at around 220 degrees that's the temperature that we feel is the right temperature for us right so low and slow. in the morning for example let's say anywhere between eight and eleven o'clock depending on the size of what we have in there we start pulling for goodness like the porchetta doesn't need to be wrapped there are, they, pork belly so it's rolled so it's got uh, a little bit more um i guess resiliency uh so it won't dry out as much but we're pulling the butts and we're we're panning them and once the bark forms and starts cracking a little bit and braising them in a little bit of you know juice let's say with different things in it and then where the briskets get wrapped Um, Again, we use prime briskets, you know, we pay up because we feel it just comes across in flavor for for our offering. Um, They get wrapped. We've done butcher paper, we use tinfoil. That's just easier for us and they get wrapped till they're completely done and then they get hot hot held for service. So ribs for example, since we're kind of talking about wrapping and holding, ribs we choose to cook till we get beautiful bark and then we're panning and braising those too. I personally don't mind a little bit of pull on my rib, but our customer base has gotten so used to and just so demanding for almost fall off the bone. Right. Fall off the bone. That's That's what they want. Right. So our technique kind of lends to that as a wonderful, you know, I guess that technique allows us to give them the product that they want. But Jeff,
2: that's not going to win a contest, is it? No.
3: No. (laughs) Speaking about customers. Do you get any special requests, whether meat or, or some of the sauces?
5: Well, we, have, we, have, well we, we offer the traditional Kansas City red. We have uh, Carolina gold. Since we do pork and beef, we feel that we should do both. And for our wings, yeah, find, you know, blue cheese is for buffalo wings. We're not yeah. a pub so we chose to make our own alabama white barbecue sauce so now we have all three sauces now our dipping sauce is an alabama white barbecue sauce which is outstanding for wings i mean outstanding people just want the sauce by itself on almost everything and you'll try it and you'll see so yeah we offer all three
2: you know who's famous for their for their alabama white sauce is chris lilly right yeah i've never had it but uh but i am gonna have this (laughs) and maybe this Smokehouse will be famous for that.
5: Absolutely.
2: Well, I, this has been fascinating, but I, I'm working up an appetite, so I'm ready to go in the kitchen if you're ready to take us there.
5: Let's do it. All
2: right. All right, so now we went into the kitchen. Yes. We're out of the kitchen. The kitchen was immaculately clean, by the way. Yeah, very, very clean. And inside is a Myron Mixon water smoker. Right. Which uh, – I mean, you can buy a a Myron Mix and Water smoker for home use, uh-huh. uh, which, but this is for uh, commercial industrial use. Right. It's huge, huge, yes. And he's. It, it, it seems like they're running it almost twenty four seven. When we went, he it was filled with wings. It was. It was. I don't know how many wings, but it was full. Yeah, and well, we probably ate half of them. think <laughs> yeah, mean, it was so, <laughs> They probably had to restock. But it was amazing. And then they're running. They're running. They they've got their briskets in there, their ribs. I mean, they got everything going in there. I don't know how they do it, actually.
3: Well, Manny does.
2: Yeah, that's why he's the resident when tour, and we're not. Right. Because <laughs> I think he needs. I I think somebody. I think he might need to get another smoker. That's all I'm saying. Because after this podcast, I the the uh, amount of more people that's going to go there, he may need to move to a, a newer location or expand. Yeah. Right. Well, what we we'll hoping he does. And he's also, he has the room, which um, is the sit-down, but then you can also go through the section, quick lunch. Right, quick He's got lunch. the bowls that are very popular. I yes. think we spoke about that in the interview, the, the, the yep. bowls, right? And if
3: you want pastrami, you have to come in uh, early on Friday. Yeah. That's, that, no,
2: that's the only time he serves it. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't done that yet, so we have to get there early Friday. That'll be a, a little road trip.
3: Yes. <laughs> and now uh, let's finish up our interview with Manny... Voomverakas. Wow. I, it's lip-smacking because you have some smack on your lip.
2: You know what, Jeff? I, you know me. I'm very seldom lost for words, and it's not because the, it was incredible, but I'm so, I'm so full that I can't even speak. It was so good. Yes, it was yeah. absolutely delicious. We, te- we uh, tried a bunch of things. Tell them, tell them what we had.
3: We had the pulled pork, the chicken, the porchetta,
2: brisket, the ribs. The the, the, the brisket and the porchetta and were phenomenal.
3: Yeah, yeah, I never had porchetta before, and I know I'll, I know I'll have it again.
2: Yeah, and the um, now the, the, so Manny, the porchetta a little unusual for a barbecue place. So tell us what made you feature that? Like what what's the origin of the porchetta?
5: Well, the well, porchetta. I, I believe would say it right. It's pronounced <laughs> porchetta. Yes, of course uh, it is. Is it is an Italian pork roast um, made with? Made, it's kind of made two ways. It's either made with just pork belly. Uh, a lot of times it's it's made with skin on. Uh, we choose to make it skin off, and sometimes it's just wrapped up with Mediterranean spices and you know some fresh herbs um, and garlic and we, and serve by itself, or it's wrapped around some pork tenderloin. We just leave it by the belly because it's just delicious by itself and so tender. When we came up with the menu, we wanted a, like I told you, a multi-ethnic twist or representation. And we figured let's do something Italian. Let's put it in there. But since we also have pita wraps as an offering for our individual meals. Like I told you, we do burritos, pita wraps, barbecue sandwiches, salad bowls, and rice bowls. I figured, well, how about if I make some porchetta and slice it up and put it in the pita sandwich with tzatziki, tomatoes, onions, and if you go traditional, some french fries, and make the best pork yudo sandwich you've ever, ever had. Right. And we do that, and it's outstanding because the porchetta is delicious and smoky and tender, and it's just pork. Sometimes you go get a pork uh, souvlaki, a pork guido, and that's just from pork that's been marinating and just been put on a grill. So we feel that we do something unique. It's traditional in that it's a European or Mediterranean offering, but it's smoked meat, which we're staying true to our message.
2: And sometimes when you get pork somewhere and you get it like in a gyro and it's cubed or whatever, it's dry. Yep. And this is not. Yeah. And I'm sure it's because you cook it low and slow. That's all it is. Yeah. And that's, people often ask, you know, wh- why do you cook the food so long? You know, when they hear how long you cook the ribs or you, or whatever else it is, and they hear how, the time you put in. That's the reason.
5: Yeah. Yeah. You cook it long enough where the connective tissues in the meat start breaking down, and you're really just left with just protein. It's delicious.
2: Now, you cook it beyond... You go beyond a certain point? Is that temperature wise?
5: Look, you know, most people, not most people, let me take a step back. When I started my journey <laughs> learning this craft, whether books I read or videos I watched, you're kind of trained or told to look at a particular temperature. So you're driven by temperature. And yes, you know, um, temperature is a very important guide. <clears throat> Uh, medium rare is 125. Chicken is done at 165. Now, when you start talking about the briskets and the bigger meats and the pork, pull it at 198 to 205. I mean, at the end of the day, temperature is important, but as you get better uh, at, at smoking meats, it, it then becomes uh, judging the feel of the actual protein. So, yes, we use, uh, you know, actually at this point, we don't really look at internal temperature anymore. Because we've gotten just so you, you know, we're, we're 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 selling and smoking meat that typically has the same range of weight, right? And we're cooking at the same temperature, uh, so we kind of know around a certain time we start feeling the meat, and then we just pull it based on feel.
2: Right, but for a backyard cook, yeah. temperature yeah. definitely—it's a
5: good starting point.
2: Yeah, definitely yeah. want to use a thermometer. They'll save a lot of they'll save a lot of mm-hmm. uh, money on overcooked meat or even undercooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you make your pork butts, are you a bone in or it's just no easier
5: bone. for us to cook them bone in? Uh, but I can't say there's a huge difference as far as bone in bone out. It'll be juicier with bone in because just naturally it's held together. But if you get a a special at the local supermarket with a bone out butt, just go get some butcher twine and truss it up. Just uh, I feel that you may actually get better flavor on a bone-out butt but, because you have more surface area to kind of put rub on, and then if you truss it up and smoke it, it'll, it'll come out just fine.
2: Jeff, what was the uh, favorite thing mm-hmm. that you ate? I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh,
5: that's a tough show. That's, that's tough. Put you on the spot. But I,
3: I did enjoy the porchetta. Mm-hmm. Because that's the first time I've had it and it was delicious. And you like showing me up by saying it correctly. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's tell the folks where they can get in touch with Smokehouse. They have a website, www.smokehouse.com, Let me spell it out for you. dot Located at seven twelfth street in Garden City, New York. And if you're in the area, come on in. It's absolutely delicious. The host Manny, Thank Michael you over there is uh, the the this fantastic guide, and they'll treat you really good.
5: Thank you, guys. Can me just throw in two uh, parting words before I let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for coming to our new spot. Uh, next week will mark our, our one-year anniversary, and we're excited to you know to you know, finish a chapter. And um, you know, Fridays we're, we do something very special. We didn't get a chance to touch up on it yet, but Fridays we offer smoked pastrami. We're probably one of the few houses, uh, or maybe the only house in the area that brines full pack of briskets so prime briskets for two weeks and then we smoke them for 14 to 16 hours to make some of the most delicious and juiciest pastrami we feel in the area so if you're around on fridays in particular come by you got to come early because we do sell out we sell out fairly early so come for lunch and come enjoy
2: okay so we're not ending this because yeah, we've got to talk about the pastrami. Can people call up ahead and order pastrami to come pick up? Where they yes,
5: they can call up and order pastrami to pick up, and we are we do that. Uh, we've we've saved product up until evening. I mean, last right. night, someone came and had uh, dinner at seven thirty. That we reserve pastrami for them because they called ahead of time. That's all.
2: I would imagine this area, big pastrami. We I mean, there's a restaurant around you know called Pastrami King. People love their pastrami with a good rub on it. Oh, it's there's nothing better. That, that that's true. The brine two weeks you two brine eggs. it for. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, we know what one Friday what we'll be doing. Absolutely. <laughs> so thank Manny, Manny again. Thank you. thank you. very much. We greatly appreciate it. it. Was great meeting you.
5: You too, guys. Best
2: of luck. Thanks. Thanks. So Leonard, have you uh, digested your food yet? No. Still. Uh, Still a little bit, a uh, little bit full, uh-huh. but I'll get there. Okay. <laughs> so Jeff, this podcast is running a little longer than a little longer than usual, right? A little longer than usual. But guys, there's no rule that says you can't pause it. Come back. Wait, there's no rule? There's, I, I thought there was a rule. That, well, there is a ruling podcasting that you can pause. Oh, okay. It's it was just made. Oh, I was not aware. It's an official, new official rule. So because we just we wanted to get both of those interviews in. And we didn't want to split them up. We didn't want to do part ones and part twos. So I'm glad we got them both. And now, a little tease.
3: What they call the business a tease. Yes, the business. And what
2: business is that? Uh, It's it's our podcast business, I guess. There's no business like podcast business. Okay, I'll stop. Thank you. Okay. Thank
3: you. And on behalf of our audience, we thank you. So tell us. Give us a tease. Well, our Hall of Famer of the day is Oscar
2: Charleston. Oscar McKinley, McKinley Charleston.
3: Yes, he was a Negro League player for many, many teams. But on his Hall of Fame plaque, I guess it says his primary team is the Pittsburgh Crawfords. But we know he played for the Indianapolis ABCs. He managed the Philadelphia Stars and the Indianapolis Clowns and the and the uh, pittsburgh crawford among many he did play in cuba and he is
2: ranked by bill james the number four greatest baseball player of all time and so he is our hall of famer of the day and the next podcast we have an exciting interview again exciting with none other than jeremy beer who wrote the book
3: oscar charleston the life and legend of baseball's greatest forgotten player.
2: And we spoke to him all about Oscar, all about his writing the book. I mean, again, next episode. Yes, but let me read his Hall of Fame plaque. Oscar
3: McKinley Charleston, Negro Leagues, 1915-1944. to Rated among all-time greats of Negro Leagues. Versatile star batted well over 300 most years. Speed, strong arm, and fielding instincts made him a standout center fielder, later moved to first base. Also managed several teams during 40 years in Negro League Baseball. Now, he was one of the best. Right. He was compared to Ty Cobb, Babe Ruth, Trish Speaker, or Weldon One, says Buck O'Neill. And when Buck says, when Buck speaks, right. you know, when he is, uh, you know, the, quite th- the authority. Yeah,
2: that plaque doesn't excite me. His, You read this book, and you will want to know even more about him. He was an incredible center fielder. He was an incredible base stealer. He was an incredible power hitter. He could, he could do it all. Manager? Right. And scout? Yes. And who did he uh, scout for the major leagues? Roy Campanella. Roy
3: Campanella. So next, that's next time on Baseball and BBQ. So for now, this is Jeff. And Len. See ya.
0: Oscar Charleston. Because of his awesome power and barrel-chested physique, many call them the Black Babe Ruth. Because of his hitting, speed, and take-no-prisoner's approach running the bases, many call them the Black Tie Cobb, to which his fans can only point out. Excuse me, Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb was the white Oscar Charleston. Good hitter, good hitter, good hitter. Uh, The fans were tickled to death when he came to bat. Charleston was one of the greatest ball players that ever lived. Indianapolis's Bill Owens and Chicago's Bobby Robinson are both in their 90s, but the years have not dimmed their memories of playing with or against Oscar Charleston in the Negro Leagues. Owens is an all-purpose infielder, Robinson is a slick-fielding third baseman, recalling a player who did everything memorably. Greatest fielder you ever seen. Yeah, he could look like, know where the ball was going, he'd go right to that spot and turn around and catch the ball. He could do it all. He could hit, run, feel, and throw. Born to Tom and Mary Charleston on Indianapolis' Near East Side in October 1896, Charleston's first exposure to Negro League Baseball came as a bat boy to the Indianapolis ABCs, one of the first organized black baseball teams sponsored by the American Brewing Company in the early 1900s. At age 15, Charleston talked himself into the Army, serving in the Philippines, developing his athletic skills in baseball and track. His discharge in 1915 brought him back to the ABCs as a rock-hard, 5'11", 190-pound left-handed power hitter and speed demon. And through the next several years, always among the leaders in batting, home runs, stolen bases, and coming up huge in big games. He's t-